Welcome to Commercial Property Pioneers. Brought to you by Riala. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Property Pioneers podcast, the latest in a series put together by Riala. I'm Paul Norman, I'm the ex-co-star news and I'm joined by Steve Jew, CEO of NewFlex, but uh, well-known particularly in the flexible service offices space over the years for various roles at Regis, MWB, CityBase, uh, a whole galaxy of all the names you'll know in, in that sector. So a great person to talk to about offices and flexible space and all the rest of it. But um, hi, Steve. Just, just coming to you first, just wanted to ask you about your journey in real estate, how you got into this and what's been your story, if you could kind of give our listeners some in, insights into your journey. Yeah, cheers, Paul. And uh, that's great. I've had a galaxy of experience, which is fantastic. I, I've never been described like that before. So thank you very well, much. I've never described anyone like that before. It just, <laughs> just popped into my head just then. Excellent. Excellent. Well, my story, what's my story? I think first I should get a disclaimer on the table. Right. And okay. that, uh, that I have no qualifications in property whatsoever. I have no letters after my name whatsoever. And I entered this sector in something of a kind of, it was something of a kind of fluke. It wasn't mm. a deliberate strategy, and we'll come on to that later probably. So everything I look at in the sector are really just me reading around things, looking at data, and just coming at things from basic principles. Having given you that dis- disclaimer, I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> so yeah. it's great. Does that help? But, just to say as well, not to... Does that help as well, coming at it from not having done the classic training and and all the rest of it? Well, does it help? Um, I think think it has helped, but it's been a long time coming. Um, Mm. I I can't uh, count the number of doors that have been slammed in my face. (laughs) <laughs> uh, with people yeah. saying, no, 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 this flexible thing, absolute, that's never going to happen. I mean, this is a long time ago now, but no, I, I used yeah. to think that that if I had 10 meetings, I'd basically have the door slammed in nine of them. And then only occasionally people would uh, come through. And for me, that uh, that was Nick Leslau who uh, said, okay, we'll give it a go. Well, that's, that's not a bad so, person to say, uh, to say yes uh, after, after all the door well, slamming. Well, that's right. And I think being, I think looking at things in a slightly different way in all walks of life, I think is, is worth doing it. One of my previous mentors used to say, now just run around the other side of the table. That was one of his phrases, run around the other side of the table. So when you're making a point forcefully and you're really trying to get a point over, he says, well, just run around the other side of the table. And I think it's always good to not become too fixed in one's views because who knows, you know, things change. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so, so take, it, take it through how you got, how you got, into, okay. uh, got into it from outside of the property world. Yeah, so, so I started my career really in marketing in the travel sector. So I worked in the airline sector for uh, British Airways. I worked in the package holiday market for what is now TUI was then Thompson Holidays and worked in the car rental business with Avis Car Rental. So I was really into the travel business. That's where my career was. And it was really fun. 
I mean, a really fun sector to be in. Um, and what happened was that uh, being in those sectors, they're all about capacity management and they're all about yield management. So I became something of a expert in yield management, in pricing and capacity management and all those sorts of things, because that's how those industries make money. And then to go back to the, the fluke that we talked about earlier, I uh, met Mark Dixon and uh, he had a company called Regis. And um, I'm embarrassed to say now I didn't really know anything about this at all. Mm. But I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. So I, I was having a chat with Mark and I said, oh, you're a yield management business. And he said, what? Uh, I said, well, you know, your buildings are like fuselages. So, um, and then what you've got is you've got a load of seats in within that fuselage, and some of them are club class, and some of them are economy class. And what you've got to do is you've got to get them filled every day at the best price that you can, and then you've got to wheel the trolley around and sell them extra stuff like meeting rooms and all that and stuff. And he said, "Yep, <laughs> you're yeah, right." Never is, thought yeah. of it in that yeah. way. So I, uh, I how, how long ago Mark. was this? How long ago was this when you this first was? Went um, this was I joined just about the time that their first float was aborted and left in the year after 9-11. So I had four years of of really just growing the business like crazy during that time. It was a it was a very, very exciting time, opening mm -hmm. centers all around the world and floating very successfully at that time. So um yeah, so I was running uh, worldwide sales and marketing that point so that was great you know that was great you know 50 countries expanding all of the time it was it was it was fantastic very very um entrepreneurial very fast moving and felt like uh you know we were on a mission felt like we were on a mission however i as i ran all sales and marketing activities i also ran pricing and forecasting mm. and and had the dubious honor of having to explain with a graph the company was running out of cash and uh yeah uh, you know mark and i get on great now but at the time maybe that wasn't the greatest graph to put in front of <laughs> <laughs> but i was right i was right yeah you know if you're selling at one price and your your costs are at another price these things are going to happen so i then um had to think about what i was going to do and i think uh i then and what i did is i i thought about what i'm really good at and i figured out I'm really good at turnaround. You know, was the yield management, the turnaround through the Regis days was really good. So I became an operator in private equity for a yeah. US private equity company. And that was good. But again, saw the, saw the crash coming. This is the financial crash now of 2007, 2008. You could see it happening because I was working in America quite a lot. And you could see that just from basic principles, things looked a bit weird. Yeah. So why, 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 I, why don't you tell someone who could have could have done something about it? So. Well, no, it's an interesting <laughs> thing. It, it, yeah. it is an interesting thing. The and I've thought about this quite a lot over the time mm. because you know I I could see it, and I think what you get into is the the kind of Kodak type of moment mm. whereby everyone in the world can see that film in cameras is not necessarily the future. But the there are people within the organization whose school fees get paid by the bonuses that they get kind of don't want to think that that's the case. Yeah. Um, and, and I think really, uh, and I, I, I thought about this a lot, and what I decided to do is just 
move out of move out of it. And so I just got out of that. We sold up everything in London and we moved to the Welsh Marches near Aonwy and we've been there ever since. So we decided to just move. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, fl- a flight rather than a fight. <laughs> so then I became a sort of privateer turnaround guy. And again, I was called by a headhunter and they said there's this company called CityBase and they, you know, they're interested in um, uh, selling and a turnaround. And I thought, okay, well, I'll give that a go. And uh, that was going to be, I thought that was about a year's assignment and nearly 14 years later in a different in- incarnation, I'm, I'm still here. So that's how I got into it. I, I really got into it by me- meeting Mark Dixon and just hitting it off. And I'm very glad I did because, you know, I, I'm never bored with this sector. I think it's just endlessly fascinating and more and more significant things keep happening. It's a good place to be rather than in an industry where you know things are just getting worse and worse and worse like the Kodak film manufacturing business i think the uh, the office market and the flexible real estate market are just disrupting and booming and uh, new things are happening it, it's just a wonderful place to be so obviously now talk to us about your current business which yeah. is new flex and how that yeah. uh, came about when you were at City Based, obviously, and how that sort of fits into the the wider commercial property and flexible offices world. Yeah, yeah. So my brief when I joined City Base was to turn it around and sell it. Um, mm. the, and the financial crash got in the way of that. And it's, uh, you, you know, the company was really, uh, we had to just focus on survival for a while. But this, the mm. goal was all, always to try and sell the company and uh, we got to a, we got to a position where we had a number of suitors for the business and the founders of the business were keen that the co- that the company should have legs and should go to a good home and i as someone who's a minor- minority shareholder in the business was um keen not to work within private equity again at that time yeah um, and so Again, just a serendipitous thing is that uh, the company Newable became one of our clients. So we all were operating a, a building for them down near Tower Bridge. And we did it very successfully. We filled it in three months from scratch. Mm-hmm. So they thought, hang on, what's this? And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, they liked it so much, they bought the company. So mm-hmm. we, uh, <laughs> we became part of the Newable group and new as newable flexible workspace uh, but that's far too much of a mouthful to say on a podcast so we call it newflex now uh, newable is a really interesting thing and this is the reason why we wanted to go there so yeah newable is a company limited by guarantee um yeah. now the, what that means is they're obliged in there to deliver sustainable profits but all of those profits are reinvested in promoting the small business activity and it's jointly important to enhance social impacts so the company we publish an annual report and accounts every year which has all the numbers in it but we also publish a social impact report about all of the works that the company's been doing so that is really interesting for us and i thought that as a competitive positioning it was quite good uh, to be in a to be in a company that was all about SMEs and didn't just have to provide 
housing, if you like, the accommodation. It could also provide money and it could also provide advice. So, for example, Newable have the largest network of angel investors in the UK and invested £29.5 million in the last couple of years. They've got 100 business advisors working to promote exports and innovation in the UK. And in the workspace uh, part of the division, which is uh, of the company, uh, which is where I am, you know, we generate 34 million square feet of leads for flexible office accommodation every year. So I think these three things are synergists and they work together. So when we're pitching to a, a fund or a, a landlord, we'll always talk about the added benefits that our occupiers get and the stickiness that that gives by being able to provide money and provide advice as well as just provide accommodation. Yeah. So that's so that's what happened there. That happened a couple of years ago. And really, uh, I don't think we could have sold to a better venture. I think it's it's gone really, really well. Okay. Now, obviously, it's been it's well worth asking you about your your experience over the years. You mentioned you've kind of been through a few peaks and troughs, and yeah, I guess one of the one of the key things to say about flexible offices is you know it was always perceived as kind of running cyclically against traditional offices, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and was uh, for a long time also. I guess in, during the sort of as Regis sort of made its name and MWB and, and others, seen as one of its problems was it had a kind of reputational problem, uh, seen as a bit of a sort of mom and pop, a lot of it, sector. Mm-hmm. That seems mm-hmm. to have changed in the last 10 years. It's become kind of well-versed that now it's here. It's sort of you know, strategically and structurally part of the landscape here to stay. Yeah. And there's yeah. been, a, you know, obviously some hugely interesting companies have come into the space as well. I mean, it'd be great just to get your sense of how different it is now this recession being part of a flexible office business to how it was in other downturns. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. The in some well, in some ways, it's sort of the best of times and it's the worst of times. Yeah. So if we kind of com- compare where we th- this um, COVID situation with say the financial crash, this this time the immediate effect on people is off the scale compared to the financial crash for in our sector. Because in the, in the financial crash, we weren't having the prime minister and the government basically instructing people not to go to the office. I mean, that's quite a big deal, you know. So, is, and, yeah. and this has been going on for a while. That's never happened that I can, I can, in my career. And it mm-hmm. certainly didn't happen in the, in the last financial crash. So, I think this is much, much, much worse. However, what I think what the strategic outcome of this is much, much, much better because I've been kind of running around like chicken licking for years saying, you know, the future is flexible. Just it's coming. The future is flexible. <laughs> and I, and it, no one, you know, no one really believes me. But now it's just obvious. And I think, you know, one of the, for me, as a sort of geek of this sector, I think, you know, the CBRE and industrious transaction yeah. last week, I think, is the most significant event in the, in, in the flexible office sector in a decade. I just think it's just off the scale mm-hmm. significant mm-hmm. in that if CBRE thinks that it's good to in, in, invest in this sector, it gives permission for everybody else. And in their... 
press release that went along with the the transaction, I think they said that 86% of their clients uh, will want more flexibility in the years to come in their officing portfolio. Yeah, you know, this is this is not some sort of left field mom and pop thing anymore. Mm. This mm. is CBRE's clients, who I imagine are large multinational type companies, realizing that flexibility has to be built into their future need. Not, not completely. It doesn't have to be, you know, black and white, but it's got to be part of their thinking process and part of their portfolio. And I think the key difference between now and the financial crash is that the customers, as we call them, the occupiers, the customers have realized that they have an alternative. And the alternative is Zoom and Teams and yeah. uh, video conferencing. I mean, I think I'm quite forward thinking on this and quite risk taking on this, but it's inconceivable that I would have set up a business 10 years ago and said, you know what, I'm going to set up a business and we're just not going to have an office. It's, it's We're going to hire 30 people and we're not going to have an office. Nobody thought like that. And the technology didn't really allow people to be in contact in the way that we are now. You know, it, it, it was a different sort of thing. And I think what people have realized by being forced to work from home is that there are, that it's not a disaster. It's not all good. And certainly for some people, particularly younger people, it's less good than it is for older people. But it's mm-hmm. not a disaster. And therefore, it does mean that, whereas in the financial crash, people didn't have that much of an alternative. You know, you, had, you went to work in an office or you didn't go to work. Well, now there is an alternative. And I think that's, that's a massive thing. And it's that realization that the pandemic has caused in people, which is sort of concertinaed what was forecast to be a 10-year, you know, steady growth of flexible officing. I think it's concertinaed into now. I mean, CBRE was saying that it would be 30% by the end of the decade. I mean, I'd be amazed when everyone gets the all clear that it, if it isn't 30% immediately. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, in terms of, you've mentioned it's been, you know, off the scale, I think was the phrase in terms of how it's impacted mm. people in the space in terms of, you know, obviously no one can go into the office, they're told not to. Um, what, what have you been doing in response, firstly? And and then I'd be really interested to know, because it's often thought that kind of you're at the, in, in the flexible space, at the sort of cutting edge of when things are beginning to return and when people are beginning to pop their heads out and say, well, actually, we need to start thinking about, you know, taking desks again. Um, yeah. Is that already beginning as well? I mean, what's it? What's, I mean, what, so I guess the, the two questions are really, how have you helped your customers? Um, mm. What relate? What can you do in that situation? Because obviously, you've still got, mm. you know, <laughs> financial obligations as well. And secondly, you know, are you already seeing, you know, people beginning to start making decisions again? Yeah, uh, good question. I'll, I'll separate those out. What have we done to help people? Well, right at the start of this, we basically set up a love bombing campaign, we called it internally. It's we're going to love bomb our customers. Hmm. And what we said is that we would go and try and negotiate uh, discounts from our suppliers, our landlords, our utility suppliers, and things like this. And we would pass on those benefits straight the way through into the pockets of our 
uh, customers. And, you know, for about the first six months, that's exactly what happened. You know, we were passing all of the benefits that we negotiated straight back in, in that we thought it was important culturally and in terms of our brand and our company values that we should be seen to be on the side of people. Um, so that was response with our customers. Now, that didn't stop people moving out. You know, some people just said, look, I, I just can't deal with this and I, I've got to move out. And obviously, that's that's not much you can do in those mm. situations. However, yeah. during this period, we have had, um, uh, 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 which I, I'm still trying to get to the to the to the, to the bottom of is a tremendously high level of new business. I mean, in the history of Newflex City Base going back over 25 years, September was the month in which we did the most new sales that we've ever done in our company's history. We did more deals in September than we've ever done in our company's oh, history. And, and that, I, would you put that down to there was a sense then that things were opening up again? And Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think so I that think response. that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And in October, we did the second biggest month in our company's history. So yeah. I think I think there was a sense that things were going to get better then. So if you look at quarter three, calendar quarter three this year against quarter three last year pre-pandemic. Uh, sorry, that, so this is uh, December November period. Um, mm. We were sixteen percent up year on year on sales, which is astounding. You know, astounding that that should be the case. Yeah. Uh, we, we've so, and we've gone into January and even though there's a, um, effectively a lockdown, we've done the same number of sales as we did previous January. So, so there are, there's no doubt that there is a, um, well, there's no doubt. There is a level of demand that allows us to book a lot of new business. Now, I suspect that, we're gaining share. Yeah. Um, but the price is awful. <laughs> so, you know, yes, our, price, our price has had to come down 25% to, mm. um, and some in central London, more than that, to, to win the business. But my view, and I've been through a couple of recessions, in, in recessionary times, you worry about cash the most and you get people in. You know, it's better to have someone in than to not have someone in. In that when things come back, the old yield management comes into place, price changes, and it's easier to change price from a high occupancy than it is a low occupancy. So, mm. you, know, you know, we're only, our uh, occupied workstations are only 3.8% down from the start of the pandemic, which, you know, if you'd said that to me in March and April last year, I would have, I would have bit your arm. Happily off. taken that, yeah. Oh, happily taken that, yes. That's and, so, uh, and, and so has it, I mean, just to ask you, has it, is that, because of a changing, you know, you, obviously you call them customer yeah. story. Is, is it, you know, are the corporates now saying, well, actually, let's take some flexible space alongside traditional, you know, more than they were? Or is it, I mean, are you doing something different? Are you offering them sort of all access to crush it? I just thought, I mean, what, what yeah. is, um, what's helping yeah. this happen other than it's cheaper, as you, well, as you said? Yeah. There's a number of things that are, that are um, helping this. The main one is that we're not dependent on central London. You know, we we are our centres are predominantly in suburban and regional locations, and yeah. what we're seeing is suburban and regional locations are selling like hotcakes. 
and they are selling to uh, to smaller deals. So we're not seeing Microsoft take fifty desks. I mean, maybe someone else in our sector is, but we're not. We're seeing we're seeing twos and threes, you know, fours and fives mm. um, taking space in suburban and regional centres. So our biggest selling centre in the network this year is Uxbridge, you know, and yeah. and you can see people coming down the M40 and not driving all the way through and stopping in Uxbridge. So, so that's I think that's the uh, a big change. Um, internally, we've um, uh, you know we've had to let some people go during this. Uh, it hasn't been a uh, there hasn't been a lot of fat about. And we've got a highly, highly motivated sales force at the moment who are just knocking it out of the park. So I, I think I think it's a a combination of things. But if we had been a exclusively central London operator in this period, that would have been an issue. Uh, but but also the thing is, you see, we're predominantly a management contract business. So mm, yeah. uh, we don't have many lease obligations. Um, we've got a couple, but most of our buildings are run on behalf of our clients on a on a management contract uh, basis so yeah. that gives us more flexibility in how entrepreneurial we can be within the within the customer market we we then innovated so we have launched new products our timeshare products where you can just buy it for one day every week yeah. um, and we've got a hybrid product where you know you can just come in it every now and again so we've just We've just tried to sort of innovate our way through it and just sell like mad. And it's working so far. I would have taken where we are now very quickly. And, you know, obviously, the, the, the ask you there is, you know, this, you've mentioned, you know, this sort of acceleration of trends, yeah. you know, pointing to some interesting figures from CBRE there, for instance. Mm. Um, I mean, what do you think are the big trends to look out for here? Now that the pandemic has sped things up, I mean, one of them you seem to be pointing to is this more sort of hub and spoke yeah. nature of things, which has been talked about a lot, um, mm. and that that might have an impact and you know certainly help businesses like yours. But yeah, is that, is that one of the other others that you know you particularly well, would flag? I, I think post-pandemic, I think there's a, I mean, I think there's a number of things. I think the first thing is the big trends that were happening before the pandemic will still be there. You know, artificial intelligence, the uh, green agenda, equality agenda, these things are still going to be there. The rise of, of the East compared to the West, these things are keep going to keep going. So I think all of those things will be, be there. But I think the pandemic in particular, I think will have a number of things that will, will become much more important. Uh, so from an occupier point of view, I think risk is going to be a really important thing. Um, I don't know, you know, we run a risk register, you know, all, all of the time. Pandemics was pretty low down the, li the list. You know, yeah. I think I think people will think about the, just the risk of what might happen and therefore how they want to de-risk their business. I mean, this has been an existential crisis for a huge part of the global economy. And anyone who's the director of any business doesn't want this happening again, or to be going into this sort of thing again, as unprepared as we seem to be going into this one from a business point of view. So I think that'll that'll come up. 
But I think there'll also be a a kind of power shift, if you like, between the occupier customer and the provider of space in that, you know, for, for a lot of people, not all, but you see this in survey after survey, lots of people want to come to an office a couple of days a week, two or three days a week and want to work at home or near, near home a couple of days a week as well. And I think that will change the power shift between the occupier and the provider of space in that the occupiers never had a next best alternative. Well, what's your next best alternative is to take a lease with another building, or to take a lease here and take a lease there. There was never an alternative, well, you know what, I'm going to work everybody at home and then I'm going to just have an office like a big meeting room once a week. This was never an option. So I think in that view, listening to customers and understanding customers' needs is going to be a is going to be just fundamentally important. Yeah. Um, so I think, therefore, this will get into how the valuation of buildings works. You know, does you know valuations at the moment in the office sector largely you know based off the leases and covenants? That looks a bit risky if thirty percent of your market doesn't want a long-term lease. You know, and wants to do it in a slightly different way. So I think valuations will need to be, will just inevitably have to be looked at again, and and how that's done. Mm. And I I think there'll be, I think there'll be probably too much kit chasing too few uh, customers. You know, the the uh, the opening up of retail uh, to have work uh, spaces in will open a massive market that wasn't even competing before. So I think there'll be a supply and demand imbalance in favor of the occupier. Which, yeah. So therefore, people who understand occupiers will have to get to, to know about that. And I think technology will continue to have a big effect. And I'm, I'm seeing like this during my time in the travel industry where you, know, you had package holidays where you, you took your flight from Luton and you went for 14 days to Mallorca and you went to the hotel and you came back and that was your block. And that was like that because that's all the technology could do. But all of a sudden, you can now book your travel on your phone as you're waiting for the bus. You know, you just book the whole thing and book it individually. And I think, I think offices will be a much more like an on-demand sort of product for a lot of workers. And I think that'll become a big, a big thing for the people who want to have a work-life balance, which is more in their favour. Um, yeah. And I would, I think that'll really take place when people are doing long term, long commutes. Um, you know, if you're doing a two hour commute every day, people have found maybe that that's not a great thing, great use of time. Yeah, I think, I think the other the other question, I guess, that still isn't really when when people talk about going back to the office. I think there's a clear understanding that lots of people really want to do that for lots of reasons, mm. but. The transport side of it, when you're, you know, particularly people getting on the tube in London and so forth, it's, yeah, that's going to be a big hurdle, isn't it? Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Mentally for people, I think when uh, when it sort of comes around, yeah, and it'd be interesting to see the responses well, I, to that as well. Well, I think that's right, and what I think leaders of businesses will do, and probably especially finance directors, God bless them, will be saying is, why do we need an office at all? You know, why do we need an office? And Really, just questioning that because you know if you're if you've got a lease on an, an office, it's a it's a very big financial 
commitment. Now, I'm not of the view that people don't need an office. I think they do need an office. But I think you've got to think, what is the role of an office? And I think, you know, the role of an office is to create a more productive workforce than you would have if you didn't have an office. So I think that creativity and innovation and water cooler serendipitous moments, you're not going to get on Zoom. It just doesn't happen. Zoom's a great sort of tick boxy sort of vehicle for people who know what they're doing already. But um, it was interesting to read about Goldman Sachs, I think, over the weekend saying, you know, we can't, we can't grow our next level of apprentices into managers if we're not with them all day. And I think that's going to pull people back. Our working from home was described there. Yes, it was an aberration. That's right. Yes, that's (laughs) right. Strong word. But and I think that that's what offices will be for. There's no point taking a two-hour commute to type emails that you could have typed on your kitchen table. I mean, that's just a complete waste of time. But to go into the office and use it as a place to learn from colleagues, to spark ideas, I think this is how it will be. But that's a very different thing from the way a lot of offices are now. Okay. Well, it's going to be really interesting to follow, Zan. Obviously, a huge, huge topic of conversation. Now, next question. You Obviously, you've run your own businesses or you know, been yeah. a leader in them. This is around entrepreneurship, we ask here. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of talk about it in different sectors like top tech and finance. Do you think it's... Uh, the question here is, do you think it's undervalued in real estate? Um, I mean, there's obviously many yeah. great... You mentioned Nick Leslie earlier. There's many, yeah. many big, yeah. big entrepreneurial figures in it. But, um, yeah. Well, I think entrepreneurship is undervalued in the UK generally. I think it's, I think it's one of our cultural issues that really we could do with blowing apart more. I mean, it, it, you know, um, when you compare it to the United States or something like that, I think as it looks in the sort of uh, property sector. I mean, in one sense, the property sector is hugely entrepreneurial in that um, I think I read recently that there are 2.7 million buy-to-let landlords in the UK. I mean, 2.7 million mm-hmm. buy-to-let landlords <laughs> who are all who are all individual entrepreneurs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's really entrepreneurial. I think in the office sector, I think it's I think it's actually quite difficult to be an entrepreneur. You know, if you're an entrepreneur thinking what sector should I get into, the office sector doesn't look like a good one to get you know, an easy one to get into. Because there are there are barriers to entry. You know, you 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 would find it hard to um raise the money. You know, uh, just as simple as that. If you're just saying, well, I've had an idea for a business and I want 10 million pounds to buy that office block. I mean, you know, you're not going to get very far unless you've got very strong track, a very strong track record and collateral and everything. So, and you're also faced with a sector that has very established rules. You know, the red book or the little red book, as I often call it, you know, the, <laughs> the, these, these sorts of things. You know, as yeah. I said right at the start, I, I'm, I haven't got any initials after my name, but, you know, almost everybody in the property sector does. So there's a kind of rules in, in the property sector that don't really apply in, in other sectors. And therefore, if you're an entrepreneur, they're kind of easier to get in, into. And I think because of that, the sector sometimes has a bit of groupthink, which you can understand. And this happens in other businesses. It happens in the travel business as well. So the property industry is not unique in this. 
And I think it's that kind of group think that comes in the rules and the barriers to entry, which have been fantastic for me, <laughs> I've got to say, because I've always thought, well, why don't the big property companies just get into flexible workspace, you know, naively, not knowing how things work? Because it's obvious. I just look, you just look at the basic stats and the average length of term and the makeup of the economy. It's obvious that things, you know, are going flexible. But thank God everybody didn't. I mean, or there would be no service office sector. But well, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, you, now we are seeing in recent years the REITs, well, the yeah. major REITs have, have all set up platforms. That's right. and, and then the big private equity groups have bought into yeah. Yeah. the space. But they, it was interesting that they kind of did back, you know, you know, back just before the financial crisis as well, we had sort of land flex and things like that. But they didn't yeah, sort of yeah. quite pick up so much as they have now. They really have sort of taken off, haven't they? And, uh, and Oh, really yes. Really yeah, and, and I, you're quite right, Paul. And, and I think that's great. I, I'm just talking about, you know, my career in this sector over sort of, you know, 20 years and whatever I've been yeah. in, in this sector. And that has only recently happened, maybe happened in the last year, 18 months. So it's mm. uh, it's the kind of late to the party um, type of stuff. But I think it's great because having all of those guys getting in, just it, it means that flexible real estate is here to stay, uh, yeah. uh, which, I, which for me is great. And as a, you know, entrepreneur in this sector, I would rather have a teeny tiny share of a humongous worldwide market than be quite dominant in a left field niche thing. And so I think it's really exciting uh, that we can play in such a big, big place. Okay. How interesting. Yes. And um, I mean, just a very quick one there before we move on to, we've got some quick fire questions oh. for you, uh, but um, before I move to them, I mean, how, how big a percentage of the market can it get to, do you think, uh, ultimately? Well, um, CBRE say it's going to be it can be thirty percent. Um, mm. I'm trying to think of who these seventy percent of people are who want to take a long term institutional lease with an upward only rent review. I don't know who those people are. So that's a that's a sort of flippant answer. Mm. The, the but if you go back through this and you think well why do people need an office and what do they need it for and how do they de-risk their business? I can completely see that global banks might want their head office in the city of London or, you know, you can see there's a lot of de-risking going on there already. Um, yeah. And I can see that that might be good for uh, a lease, but say that's what, 5% of the total market and then there might be some global lawyers who want to be in Midtown to, to do that. And there might be some organizations who are so about culture and trading floors and stuff like that, that they might want to be in uh, all, all at the same time. But, you know, I would personally, my view is, is that will in that will invert so that the 30% of flexible will actually become 30% conventional and 70% flexible. And, and by that, I don't mean serviced offices. I think serviced offices is just one of the, one of the many Animals in the jungle. It's just one of the one of the ways of adapting to customers' needs. But I think it'll flip. I think it'll be seventy percent flexible and thirty percent conventional as we know it now. Okay, how interesting. Well, just now moving on to these uh, five fire quest, quick fire questions for you. First one: What is the best book you've read about real estate or business, and why? 
<laughs> yes. Um, I'm not reading as much as I should. I think reading is in, invaluable, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm not doing as much as I should. On the real estate, uh, Draw Paul Egg's got a good book out that I read uh, recently, which uh, is all about the, the future of flexibility, which I thought was really, uh, really excellent. On um, a bit, well, what was the best book. I can't remember the, even the name of the title of it. It's like Flexible Future or something. Um, mm. I, but it, it's his latest book. Mm. Uh, and I got an autograph copy as well. Um, oh. the, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but the but the best book I've read about real estate in a way was uh, Wolf Hall. I read uh, recently by Hilary Mantel, oh, which is all about, yeah. Yeah, all about the dissolution of the monasteries and how the assets uh, inherent in the value of property in the monasteries that prompted Henry VIII to do that. So that's a sort of oblique answer to a property question. Yes, it is a bit. Yeah, but it's a good, <laughs> I agree with you. It's a great read. <laughs> really great. Really great. The most overrated advice people give you about working in real estate? Yes, it's really boring. Real estate's really boring. That's really, <laughs> really not good advice. It's really, really exciting. And it's exciting because it's, it's disrupting. You know, you've got a yeah. massive global industry that's in the middle of a disruption. It's it's fascinating and anything but boring. So that was the worst advice I'd had in that. Who, who told you that? I mean, obviously they obviously don't know the characters involved in it if they told you. Yeah, told you most of my most of my family. <laughs> they they liked the uh, free holi- the, the free airline seats with British Airways. <laughs> right. Okay. So that was where the disappointment came in. All right. Yes. Um, <laughs> what's the best part of working in real estate, and why? Um, I think it's it's a once in a career moment where you can be in the middle of fundamental disruption in a huge market. You know, lots of other industries have disrupted over the last decade, fifteen years, and um, property is going through it now. The office market is being dis- is disrupting right now, which is, I think, just fantastic because there's no roadmap. You know, no one really quite knows what's going to happen which I love. I love the uncertainty and the thinking things through and having a go. So I think it's the disruption that makes it a good place at the moment. Okay. And then the flip side of that, what's the, the worst part of working in? Um, uh, I, I think the, the worst part is it can be insanely, mind-numbingly slow sometimes because of the rules and the way that the finance works. So it can be slow. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, well, final final question in here. If you were not working in real estate, what other career? Well, you've already chosen one before, but what, what would you be? What would you choose to do? <laughs> oh, that's easy. Uh, if I wasn't doing this, I would be running a fish restaurant by the sea in Greece. That's what I'd like to do. And when oh, I yes. say running, I mean primarily owning and running. Primarily <laughs> eating in it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's probably. Um, uh, but before that, I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, that was what I, I would. I really thought being a journalist would be the thing. So maybe I'll take your well, advice on that. We, we, are, time. we are hiring. So, um, <laughs> um, well, um, well, thank you so much for that. And uh, it's really interesting to catch up with you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, for the, My pleasure. For the Property Pioneers podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Okay, for everyone who wants to listen now, you'll be able to listen to the Commercial Property Pioneers podcast, latest one with Steve Jude on an app of your choice. And just to say, this was recorded on the 1st of March. 
Thanks for listening. Check out Riella, the number one commercial property portal in the UK on riella.co.uk.